Well, we're continuing our series through on renewal. And last week, uh, Pastor Kevin did a wonderful job preaching on the topic of renewal through Sabbath. Sabbath is a regular rhythm that we are to practice in order for us to be constantly renewed and reconnected and recalibrated in our hearts. You know, when we're talking about renewal, it's not an easy uh, topic. When we're talking about renewal, we're really talking about deeper Christianity. That's the essence of renewal. We're not talking about being made new for the very first time. We're not talking about being saved. We are talking to you who have been tested. You believe in Jesus. You've gone through some trials. You have not walked away. You know the Bible, or at least enough of the stories to teach it to other people. You know how to serve God. You've been in church. Yet, it's easy to grow cold. It's easy to grow apathetic. It's easy to go through the motions over time. And so that's why we constantly need renewal. So how do you grow deeper in your love for God? You, you love God. You do. But how do you grow deeper? How do you experience victory over sin? You know in your head and, your, and even in your heart you know the sin is wrong. Yet, how do you experience victory over sin? How do you recognize the extent of sin? How do you cultivate vitality for those of you who are already serving Him and you love Him? How do you keep your heart revived and watered and filled? So if you're new to Christianity, these sermons aren't going to be easy. That's not the essence of the topic of renewal. But we're hoping that if you're new to Christianity, these messages will give you an idea and will help to equip you for the journey ahead, especially when you enter into seasons of spiritual dryness. You know, early in our Christian walk, and I include this in myself, I include myself in this, so I'm going to keep saying we and us because I'm still learning this every day. You know, early in our Christian walk, we struggle with sin. And we go to God and we say, God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Then we go out and we sin again, right? The same sins, whether it's lust or anger, we sin again. And so if once we're reminded of that, we go back to God and we say, God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Please forgive me. And we know God forgives us, but this happens over and over again. Eventually, we feel discouraged. Eventually, we either grow apathetic and realize that we're going to keep sinning in this area or that uh, it's not working. And for some, that's when they may realize that, they're, that Christianity is not for them. But imagine this in a relationship. If this is someone that you're closely related to and you keep going back and you say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? But then you do it again and again and again. Eventually, you realize that there is no growth in that relationship. You see what I mean is that confession is good, but, if, but when we go back to God like that, which we all do and we will early in our Christian life and even in the middle of our Christian life, then that reveals that God is just a judge to us. And if God is simply a judge where we simply go back and ask for his forgiveness, then it'll take us some time to see it. That our Christian life is really based on our performance. That's what it is. That our Christian life is based on our performance. And there's a lot of times where I don't realize this still. Even though I'm teaching you, you this, uh, you know, God has to bring something in my life, some type of trouble for me to realize, wow, you're basing your Christian walk on your performance again. You know, Tim Keller gives an example that I, I, I feel like helps to explain this, is that if we ask people, how do you change? You know, your mind tells you that when you sin, 
It, it hurts yourself. It hurts other people. It hurts God. So you need to change. So most people, including myself, we try to change by trying hard to avoid the consequences of sin. Because honestly, if there's no external consequence, then there's no real need to change. Meaning, if you're single and you live alone, and let's just say you don't have to go to work because you just sit in front of your computer because everything was you know, teleworking for a while, then you're not really offending anybody with your sin, right? You're just by yourself. And if that's the case, there's nothing, there's no external consequence that's causing you to deal with sin. But when there's external consequences, then relationships get hard. Life gets hard. And for that reason, we might try our hardest to change. But if we dig deeper, then Keller explains that if our desire to change is motivated by the consequences of sin, then we don't really hate our sin, right? which means we don't really love God. We love ourselves and our consequences, they hurt us. So at the bottom of it, we're really trying to change for ourselves, not for God. And that's why we keep going back into this pattern of God, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? We love ourselves. So our behavior changes temporarily. An example that I understand all too well, and many of you understand, is anger. You know, again, if you're by yourself and you can hold it in, nobody sees your anger. But if you're in a relationship, people are going to see your anger. And at least for me, when I go to work, I can't really get angry. or I can't show you that I'm angry with you. <laughs> so you're a pastor, you get disqualified. But at home, when your kids drive you crazy and you scream at them, you're not going to get fired. But God knows. And so let's just say that you have an anger issue or we have an anger issue and we know it's hurting other people. So we say, okay, I'm going to try really hard to not be angry. And so what you do is for six months, you discipline yourself based on your will. And what you do is you cut down the tree. Tim Keller says you cut down the tree. He uses a different example, but here's my example. So you cut down the tree, but the roots are still there. Why do you cut down a tree? Because you realize the consequences, they're affecting you. It's making life difficult for you. It's making your relationships difficult. Six months later, things settle down and something triggers you and there's that anger comes out again. So even being able to control yourself at work or at church, it's only external. You want to avoid the consequence of shame or, or blowing up or having to make things right, but internally, this doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It just means that your faith is here and your faith hasn't gone deep enough here yet. But the real challenge is that we're trying to deal with sin. We're not really realizing that the source of that sin is the love of yourself. And that's hard because it's easy for us to take Christianity and say, hey, it's about me. Because even when you consider Christianity, when you first get saved, and God understands this, when you first get saved, it's, do I believe this? Is this true? Can I live this? Is this for me? Do I believe this? Do I believe this? You see, you're subjecting Christianity to your will. It's no wonder if you never get past that point, you're going to live out your Christianity as Christianity has to please you. And, and I think that's why when you look at the life of Moses, which we're going to go to today, you realize that Moses was an angry person. Moses was impatient. He had good intentions, but he didn't trust God all the time. Yet you don't see these accounts of Moses wrestling with sin. 
What he wrestles with is, you see in his entire life, learning to die to himself, learning to rely on himself less, and learning to surrender and trust God. And learning that even when you don't get the blessings, you learn to cherish the blesser, the giver. And that's what you see. He learns to die to himself. The title of this morning's message is Renewal Through Deep Heart Change. Renewal Through Deep Heart Change. So today we're going to see three examples of deep heart change from the life of Moses. A renewed focus, a renewed faith, and a renewed future. I'll give you these as we go along, but they're in your outline so you can see this. And obviously today, this is going to be a very, very topical sermon. Uh, Not joking, it's not expositional at all. But point number one is a renewed focus, a renewed focus. What we see in the life of Moses is he goes from being very self-centered to being God-centered, from being very self-centered to being God-centered. And so early on in Moses' life, if you have God's word and you want to follow the principles that I'm drawing out or the truths, you can, you can look in Exodus chapter 2, but I won't be referring to the passages specifically at this point. The history of Moses is Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the Egyptian palace. So he grew up as a, with privilege and with power. He did not grow up as a Hebrew slave, but he knew that he was a Hebrew. And at this point in Moses' life, he did not have a personal relationship with God yet. God never introduced himself to Moses personally. He just knew of his history. He knew that he wasn't an Egyptian. He knew he was a Hebrew. And in Exodus chapter 2, Moses sees an Egyptian. He goes out. He's an adult now. And he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating up an Israelite, one of his fellow people. And so Moses is angered by this act of injustice, and he takes it into his own hands. And so he murders the Egyptian, and he buries his body. And long story short, this results in Moses running and fleeing from the consequence of what would happen in Egypt, and he goes out and he runs to Midian, and that's where he meets God. So again, this, at this point, Moses, we would say, is not yet a believer. Then in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters the holy God of Israel through the burning bush. And this is where God calls Moses to go back to Egypt and petition for Pharaoh to free the Israelites. And it's almost as if God is saying, Moses, You had good intentions, but you took things into your own hands. It's never right to murder a man. And that was not self-defense, per se. So now I'm giving you a chance. I'm sending you back with all my power and my instructions to go and really deliver the Israelites. And Moses is reluctant. But something that we have to understand is that this is the beginning of his relationship with, with God. So God is patient with Moses. And so God reassures Moses over and over again in chapter 3 that he's going to go with him. Here's what you're going to say. Here's exactly what you're going to say to Israel. Here's what you're going to say to Pharaoh. And I will be with you. And Moses is reluctant. And, and, and God says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do for you. Let me give you some examples of the signs and the miracles that I will do for you so that Pharaoh will listen to you. But what we see is that Moses, he's focused, just like me and you in the beginning of our relationship with God. It's all about, I can can do this for God. Maybe I can live the Christian life, but I can't do that. 
Can you serve God in this way? I can't do that, but I think I can do this. Can you battle this sin? I, 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 we, we, we. I can do this, but I can't do that yet. Now look with me at Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Look at verse 11. I'm going to show you three examples, okay? Exodus 3, 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? He's focused on himself. But God, in this context, has told him, I will be with you. I will speak through you. I will work through you. But he doesn't hear any of that, just like we don't hear any of that. Early in our Christian life, even late in our Christian life, when we're focused on ourselves. Exodus 4, 1. Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. So God's saying, look, I, I will go with you. Tell them that I am, that I am sent you. But Moses is too focused on himself. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to my voice. Now look at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent. He's focused on his, abil- his inability. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It is, not I, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Verse 13, Even the Lord saying this to Moses in verse 13, Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Look at how self-focused and how self-centered Moses is. For me and you, if God showed up in a burning bush and spoke to us, I think we would feel reassured or maybe we won't. See, it's easy for us to criticize Moses and say, well, Moses, look, you had God speaking to you. But I, I will tell you, even when, if God were to speak to us because of ourself, we are going to be just like Moses. God, I, I don't want to do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. <clears throat> it's about me. Long story short, most of you have heard the Exodus story and you know what happens. Moses does obey and God does deliver Israel from Egypt. It wasn't easy. There were plagues involved. There were slaughtered lambs involved. There was the parting of the Red Sea. But all in all, in the end, God is teaching Moses a lesson. And he's teaching Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. You need to trust me. Right? He doesn't understand early in his walk how this relationship with God works. He doesn't understand that when God asks us to do something for him, he's actually going to work through us and with us and for us. And it's never about us. In fact, when we try to do things for God and we, we forget to consult him, that's when we mess up and that's when we're operating, trying to do good things out of our own will. And the same thing with battle with sin. Right? So you can see that you don't see here God dealing specifically with the sin issues. Instead, he's dealing with the self. He's trying to cause Moses to die to himself because the result of that would be dying to the sin issues. And then in Exodus 15, which we had referenced earlier, I just want you to see one verse. Exodus 15, verse 2. But Exodus 15, this is after the crossing of the Red Sea. 
This is a very different Moses. My point is not to exposit the passage for you. It's just to show you a contrast. Moses goes from a person that's so focused on himself to Exodus 15, where there's this song of praise where Moses says in Exodus 15 to the Lord is my strength and my song. So it's not about his strength. It's not about his words. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. It's not about I will bring salvation for the Israelites. I will deliver them. I can do it. I can do it. He's changed at the heart level. Right? He's changed a little bit. We know he, he, there's still a lot of work to do, but he began to say, this is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Moses is learning. That's point number one. Right? Point number one is a renewed focus, a focus from a shift from being self-centered to God-centered. And you see that Moses is beginning to experience deep change. Point number two is the second, the second, the second application of deep change that we see from Moses is a renewed faith. And so you see a person that shifts from a repeated reluctance to reflecting the Redeemer. And where do we see this? We see this in his prayer life. We see this in his prayer life. If you look at Exodus 6, verse 12, so we go back. We go back to before the crossing of the Red Sea, before the 10 plagues. Moses prays to God in this way. He talks to God. Exodus 6, verse 12, it says, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Uncircumcised lips is just a a phrase. It's just a saying. And it means that he wasn't ready for public speaking. I mean, so so God's telling him, I'm going to speak through you. And he's saying, it's because of how I speak. I'm not trained. I'm not able. I'm not eloquent. He's still focused on him not having the ability to speak. And so he's saying, if Israel won't listen to me, how will people listen to me? If my, if my kids don't listen to me, how will other people listen to me? If, if I'm dealing with this, how can I share the faith? Right? How can I do anything? I, 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 how many times do we hear that? Can we speak for God? I don't even know how to explain it to people, the gospel. How can, I, how can I go and evangelize? And we're focused on ourselves. And we don't understand that when God calls us to do something, that he wants to do it through us and for us. And actually, we can't do it. So Moses doesn't say, but notice it's different. You see a difference in Moses' prayer life? Moses should be saying, and I think this would be a Uh, actually mature if he says, but God, they aren't listening to you. God, Pharaoh is not listening to you. Instead, he's saying, they're not listening to me. How will Pharaoh listen to me? I don't have eloquence. But he needs to learn that God has called him to do this. They're not listening to God. And he learns this later. So in Exodus 32 and 33, and I'm not going to explain these passages because we preached these on the first sermon. We exposited these passages. So go back and you can watch the, the sermon on week one of renewal. But in Exodus 32 and 33, he's praying to God once again about the Israelites and their sin. This is after the Golden Calf Act uh, incident. And I want you to see a difference in his prayer life. <clears throat> 
You see, where do you see his heart change? In his prayers. In his prayers. How he talks to God. And that totally makes sense. If God is the one who transforms us, then where do you most see that transformation? Not in your public ministry where everybody can see it and you can fake it. You see when a man's heart has truly changed when he is in private before the Lord. And so in Exodus 32, verses 31 32, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And I explained last time that blot, blot me out of your book means he's willing to give his physical earthly life if God would not destroy and consume the nation of Israel and start all over, over again with a new people. So Moses goes from self-focus to now praying for the Israelites and self-sacrificial. He's dying to himself. He's willing to give his own life if God would just keep Israel alive and keep his promises to Israel. You see a complete change from a repeated reluctance of I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this to now he's beginning to reflect the Redeemer. His character is changing. And again, notice that that God's not dealing specifically with Moses, you have an anger issue. You have an issue with impatience. He, he's, he's teaching Moses in his prayer, die to yourself. Your problem is you and your lack of trust in me. You don't know me. That's the problem. See, a lot of times we think our, our problem is the sin issue. And God's trying to tell me sin is grievous to me. But the problem is you don't understand how this relationship works. You don't understand that it's a relationship, not a religion. That it's a matter of trust and surrender and not your own willpower, even when it's well-meaning. But Moses is learning and you see that in his prayers. And you know what God was teaching me as a pastor as a husband, as a father, you know, a lot of times when I struggle with sin, I don't know, for some reason, I think I need to read more books, like, like, and books are good, but I'm like, I don't know enough, or I don't have enough life experience. I just need to live a little more and learn the hard way. And God's like, if you want to do that, you can do that. You're going to hurt a lot of people along the way. And you know, the weakest part of my spiritual life is my prayer life, because I like to get things done, I, I thought I was a people person until I met Pastor Terrence. <laughs> and I realized that I really don't love people. I, I love doing things and just making sure our church does things and that we do a lot of things. And God's like, you know, even look at your prayer life. Like how much time do you spend praying? You, you spend way more time trying to prep sermons and trying to lead meetings you don't pray enough personally. And, and, I, and, I, and, and I realize that's, that's, that's what's happening. I'm not growing. You know, I, I, I know more about the Bible and I know more about ministry and I have more life experience, but I'm not praying. And I can make all these excuses like, well, I, I, there's not enough time. There's all this ministry. All this all. And, and God's like, look, you know, you're making appointments and answering emails, but why don't you put it in your appointment book, one hour prayer? I, because if... If, if people came by the office and looked in and they would think I'm sleeping. <laughs> and God says, look, you know what? You're not praying enough. You're, you're not leading people to pray. You're, look at the quality of your prayer life and you will see. You will see if your heart is changing. And you realize you stop praying for yourself. You stop praying 
please forgive me for my sin. Please forgive me for my sin. Because you know you're a sinner, but, you, but it's not the confession's bad, but you move past that. Because you have assurance that you're forgiven. And you know that the more you pray, it's not going to do anything for you in terms of forgiveness of your sins. So you stop focusing on yourself. And you realize that you're asking for forgiveness just so you can have inner sense of security for yourself. But you begin to say, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I know I'm forgiven because I'm talking to you. Because once I realize that I, I, I'm too ashamed to talk to you, that then I might be an unbeliever. But because I'm coming back to you, that mere fact shows that I believe in you. And so I'm going to start praying for people. And just keep praying for people. And I'm not even going to pray for myself, right? But, but that's not something that you consciously think about. It just happens in your prayer life. That your heart begins to break and cr cry for people. In particular, God's people. And, and, and then you realize Exodus 33, 13 to 15. Look at, look at, look at, last time I showed you, right, a couple weeks ago, that God actually told Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. I'm going to consume them and destroy them. I'm going to make a new nation starting with you. That's a great offer. And Moses is like, no. He reminds God of his promises. You look at, and God's just testing Moses. Look at the reversal. Now God is the one saying, they don't listen to me. These stiff-necked people are helpless. I'm going to consume them. And Moses is like God now, the heart of God. And Moses is now saying, God, no, but you are their God. These are your people. Remember your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, you are a, a God who delivers. It's about your fame, and you have to deliver these people. Please forgive them or take my life. Look at Exodus 33, 13 to 15. Um, in, in the, at the end of verse 13, he says, Consider too that this nation is your people. These aren't my people, God. This is your people. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. Right? He says, my presence. And, and, and so the Lord says to um, Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And verse 15 of chapter 33, Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. How do, how do I know that you have found faith, that, I, that you're pleased with me, Lord. Is it not you're going with us? He understands that forgiveness means a reconciled relationship that God's presence is with us. And he says, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of this earth. And once again, what I explained a couple weeks ago is the only thing that makes Israel any different is that God's presence is with them. Sin separates us from God's presence. And if you don't have God's presence, you can have the land, you can have the blessings, but without God's presence, you don't have anything. That's the only thing that makes Israel distinct. And Moses finally understands, it's about me and you, it's about you and the people, it's about the relationship, it's about your presence. If we don't have your presence, it doesn't matter. So it's not even about what I can do for you. Notice he's not saying anymore, God, but I can't lead these people. I'm not eloquent. I can't change them. Moses finally understands, God, I can't change them. And the only way they are going to remain in covenant is if you stay with them. Because if you stay with them, that means there's some type of system where their sins are going to be atoned for. There's some way that they are going to actually repent because that means that you will stay with them. But if you remove your presence, for sure they will go into sin. You see, there's a difference. It's not 
works-based. It's not, here's the law, now go keep the law, and if you keep the law, I'll stay with you. Moses knows they have the law, and they're not going to keep it, which means you're not going to stay with them. That's what happens throughout the Old Testament. They go into the land. They have the law. They go to idols. God exiles them. Moses knows this. So he finally realized, God, it's not about having rules. And it's not about just letting people change their their willpower. It's about your presence. If you're not with us, we're not going to change. Moses finally understands that. And so the more Moses dwelled with God, the more he starts to reflect the character of who? Christ. Moses is a prototypical Christian. He's not like Israel. He had a direct prayer life in a relationship with God. God listened to him. He prayed to God. He's a basically a Christian praying to the hidden Christ long before Christ was ever revealed. And so, he, so Moses, in many ways, is just like us. And his heart is beginning to change. But once again, the change is in his prayer life. It's in his prayer life. How many of you, if I told you, hey, I need the church to block off some hours so that rather than having staff meetings and, you know, running events that the pastors can just pray, you would be like, you guys are just wasting your time. Like, what are you talking about? Two hours in the office praying? But we're supposed to be your leaders, you guys would probably be like, yeah, yeah, the pastors aren't doing anything. They're just sitting in their office praying. We know that. <laughs> That's probably what's, what the weakness of a lot of churches are. We need to fight that. We need to prioritize prayer as a ministry. I know my temptation. When there's a vision, we need a strategy. And so my thing is just to find the people who can do strategic planning. That's my weakness. And we get a staff meeting or something, we start making plans. And something that I'll confess to you is that I forget strategic planning without strategic prayer means our plans fail to consider or secure our greatest resource. So we start to make plans without securing our greatest resource, which is God. But if God, we go to God first and then we make the plans then maybe the plans will be saturated and motivated by the prayer time. But how many times, I, like I go into a staff meeting and I expect that we're going to go through the agenda and get stuff done. And then Pastor Albert says, let's go around and pray. And, I, and then for like 30 minutes, I'm like, this is such a waste of time. We have, we have, we have conflicts to resolve. We have strategy. We, we need to plan this. We have this. We need to deal with this. We need to talk about this. And I'm just, I'm just sitting there. What are we doing? I confess that to you. How many of you are like me? Be honest. And if I told you we spent four hours as a pastoral staff and we didn't get anything done, we just prayed for you, you guys would be like, what's wrong with you guys? But, but you see, you guys don't love prayer because I don't love prayer. And that's what the Lord has been teaching me. I love God's word. I love the knowledge aspect of it. I love preaching it to you. But the Lord is teaching me, Hanley, the church will not experience renewal until the pastors love prayer. And it's not that the other pastors don't love prayer. I'm just putting myself out there. 
but we don't carve out the time to pray. But that's where you begin to see the change in the hearts of people. What is the content of their private prayer life? Not the public prayer life like the Pharisees, but the private prayer life. That's where the deep change happens. And doesn't it make sense that if transformation happens in the presence of God, then prayer is when you're most readily seeking the presence of God. And so you're being transformed through the prayer. So prayer is a work. It is a service. It is doing something. It's not just sitting there and being mystical, but you're actually doing a work. Now, you do have to do work. You do have to obey, but there's the prayer aspect. And that leads to point number three, is a renewed future. So, there, so the first shift in deep change was a renewed focus. Moses was transformed from being self-centered to God-centered. The second shift was a renewed faith. His faith was from repeated reluctance because his faith was in, in his own ability to now reflecting the Redeemer. Once you saw his character, he began to act and talk like Christ long before Christ came. But the last one, I think, is the most convicting. It's a renewed future. And that's from a promised kingdom to a promised king. From knowing that you're headed towards the promised land because there's blessing to having the promised land taken away from you. But still not complaining and knowing that you haven't lost anything. I'm going to start here with this point. Early in, in our Christian walk, if someone were to ask us, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? We would say this, and we're not wrong. We would say, Jesus died and rose again for my sin. I am saved from God's judgment. I'm saved from hell. That's true. What does it mean to be saved? I'm saved from hell. So what does it mean to be a Christian? I'm going to a better place. But then over time, we realize that if you just remain there, then it's still about you. So it's good. It's a good truth. But the truth remains here. I'm going to a better place. But what, why is it a better place? Because it's a better presence. Because you're constantly in the presence of God. And is it about being with a better person, Christ, or becoming a better person? <laughs> so those are all the things where subtly people can be Christian. And they say, why are you a Christian? Because I'm becoming a better person. That's still self-focused. It's good, but it's, it's, it's immature. <laughs> I'm going to a better place. I'm going to heaven. No more suffering. That's true, but it's immature. Maturity is it doesn't matter if I suffer. I want to be in God's presence. That's what makes it a better place. What makes me a better person is Christ. And so, so these are things where it's okay. You, you, what, what I want you to see is that early on, God does not judge Moses. You see, God's like, Moses, you're a baby Christian. Uh, he's not a technical Christian yet, but he's like a prototypical Christian, right? Because he's directly talking to God. There's no law. There's no, I mean, there's no uh, temple system for him. He's, and, and so God's saying, Moses, you're a baby believer, but then later, God judges him and says, you, you, your consequence is bigger because you should have learned to trust me by now. If you have God's word, take it and turn me to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. So this tells us that Moses was headed to a better place, the promised land. But because of his sin, because he fails to trust God, God takes it, takes it away. 
So in, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, verses 48 to 52, it says this. It says, I hear Bibles turning, so I'll pause. That's what I love about Bibles. With your phones, I can't tell if you're following or playing uh, Candy Crush. You guys still play that? <laughs> Just crush it for me. <laughs> Remember, Christ was crushed for our sins. Don't play Candy Crush. <laughs> um, Deuteronomy 32, 48 to 52, it says, That very day the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan. So look at the promised land, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, which means die and go back with your ancestors, be buried, as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because why? Why aren't you going in the promised land? Because you broke faith. Because you broke faith. It doesn't say because you got angry and lost your temper and was impatient. This is because you failed to trust me. You broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, meaning you lost trust. You failed to trust me before all the Israelites, and they saw that breach of trust. At the waters of Meribah Kedish in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, you shall see the land before you. You shall see it, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. So the incident the Moses, where Moses broke faith is found in Numbers chapter 20, and you don't have to turn there. In Numbers 20, the people are nearing the end of the 40 years. So just think about that. The punishment for worshiping idols is wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, and they're almost at the end, at least for Moses. Moses was not the one that worshiped the golden calf. He's, he's not the one that broke covenant with God. And so if you're Moses, you're like, you're, you're near the end and you're going to lead the people in the promised land. And he fails once and God says, that's it. You've reached almost the end of 40 years, but you're not going to see the promised land. And, and if I was Moses, I'd be like, God, come on, please change your mind, please. You, you got to be kidding. Be gracious to me, God, type of thing. But they reached the point where they needed water and there was no water source. So the people began to rebel against Moses and Aaron. So if you, were, you and me, we would be frustrated. The people are rebelling against Moses and Aaron. So Moses and Aaron, they go before God in Numbers 20, and God tells them exactly what to do. And God says, see that rock? Speak to that rock. Don't hit it. God simply says, speak to it. Now in Exodus, uh, in Exodus there's this uh, chapter 17, there's this earlier account where God actually tells Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. This is a completely different situation. So Moses is supposed to just command water out of the rock and God is going to bring the water. But instead, he goes to the people and he expresses his anger. And he says to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? But look at the momentary failure. Where's the key? It's not just the anger. It's we. Must we, me and Aaron bring you water out of this rock. And he strikes the rock twice out of anger. But God's instructions were just command the rock and I'll bring the water. And so in this moment, Moses directly disobeys a direct command from God. And at this point in his relationship, God expected Moses to know better, to trust him. 
So Moses, it, didn't, it wasn't that he broke rules. It's that he failed to trust God. It's about the relationship, not the religion. Third, his anger, he reverted back to self-centeredness. Must we bring you out? He should have said, behold, your God is going to give you water. Trust God. And fourth, Moses dishonored God before all of Israel. And God could not let this pass without consequence. But nowhere do we read in the rest of the Pentateuch that Moses complained, complaining or petitioning with God to let him into the land. Because Moses learned, he knew, it's okay, I'll take the consequence. Uh, because God is not leaving me. The consequence of the blessing, I'll take that. I, I won't get to see the land. It's not about the land. Moses' desire of being in God's presence was greater than going into a better place. He's like, it's not about going to a better place. I, I lost that, and I'm not going to be devastated over it. Because heaven is not about being in a better place. It's about being with God. And as long as I'm with God, that's what I want. Now, we know this is true. Because eventually, Moses dies, and he sees Christ. He sees Christ. We know this from Hebrews 11. But we know that he saw the pre-incarnate Christ because in, at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, Moses is there. But in Hebrews 11, if you could turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, <clears throat> I'm not going to directly read the parts that talk about Moses, but in Hebrews 11, it describes Moses and his faith. But I want specifically to focus on verses 39 to 40. In verses 39 to 40, It's including Moses, Hebrews 11, 39 to 40. It says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. For Moses, it was the land. Verse 40, Since God had provided something better for us. So this is Moses, the Old Testament saints, and the church. That apart from us, the church, they, the Old Testament saints, should not be made perfect. What's going on there? Well, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. So what's happening is that Moses has no idea that he's looking to Christ. So every single time he's praying to God, he's, he's exercising faith. His faith is imperfect. And Christ is the one, the author and perfecter of his faith. He's, he's actually being conformed to the image of Christ. It's no wonder that his prayer life begins to sound more like Jesus. Blot me out instead. Take my life instead. Forgive them. He's mediating. He's, he's, he's not praying for himself. He's praying, dying to himself. He's being more sacrificial. He's willing to sacrifice. And the one time he does not act like Christ consequence. You lose going into the promised land, but you don't lose your salvation. And he understands that. And so more and more, Moses is being conformed into the image of God, and it's seen through his prayers. And we know in Corinthians, it says day by day, we, we are in the presence of God, and we're being renewed into what? Into what image? Into the image of Christ. The more we behold him, the more we become like him. And so foolish me, what, you know, prayer needs to be the fuel of all of our ministry. So now, 
if I'm bothered or troubled, uh, you know, to the best of my ability of what's appropriate, I'm very transparent on Wednesday night. At prayer meeting, I'll tell, the, I'll tell the prayer group, pray for this, pray for this. We need unity. We have conflict here. Pray for this. Is that if we're, if we're going to go forward as a congregation, it starts with our Wednesday night prayer meeting. That's, that's, that has to be our most important ministry. And then our private prayer life. And, and then just every other prayer ministry. Because that's where the transformation happens. Bible study is where we hear from God and we learn from Him. But Bible study is a little harder because it's easy sometimes just to focus on just the studying part or the knowledge part or the preparation part. But prayer, I mean, you could be self-righteous in your prayer and all of a sudden you'll get convicted. I mean, just go to God and say, God, uh, you know, please forgive me, but forgive them. I'm much better than them. Like, just pray like that for five minutes before you get convicted and be like, oh, God, forgive me for that. Prayer transforms us. And so Moses in his prayer life, when he goes into the tent, when he meets with God, when he tabernacles with God, he doesn't know it. But when he expresses faith, he's actually praying to the the hidden Christ. Because it says Christ is the one he was looking to. He didn't know, but Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And that's why I say Moses was a prototypical Christian and his heart was changed by the hidden Christ. The other thing I just want to add is that we remember Moses in the beginning, um, you'll have to go back and read this. He says, who are you? And God, said, and, uh, God says to him, I am. And he has no idea who God is, but he knows who he is, I guess. He doesn't know who God is. And over time, he, he learns who God is. And so he goes from saying, God, you know, I, I can't do this. Who are you? I can't look upon you. To knowing that God has accepted him. And to that point, remember two weeks ago, the sermon where he's like, God, I want to see your face. 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 I want to just see you. And, and, and God's like, you can't see me. Otherwise, you, you'll die. Why is that? (laughs) The only way any man can see the face of God is the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never reveals himself as a face. God the Father never manifests himself as a face. The only time you can actually look upon God himself is Christ. So when Moses dies and he gets to see the face of Christ, the person who he's praying to, who he's becoming more like in his prayer life. He has no idea that this is the hidden Christ that's going to come thousands of years later. He has no idea. Finally, that's the only way that he sees God's face. That's why he couldn't see God's face. He couldn't see God's face. But when he dies and he goes into God's presence, he sees God's face. And he sees, okay, I am the one you were talking to. I am the one who was with you. I am the one who parted the Red Sea. And when you doubted, I am that guy. I am the God, the father of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that I am. I am the one who was with you. I have never left you. I am the covenant God. I am your Christ. Big idea of this morning's message. 
Deep heart change happens when Christ becomes the renewed center of our focus, our faith, and our future. And we will learn over time, it's not about I, but it's about the great I am when you and I learn that Jesus says to us, I am to be your focus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I am to be the center of your faith. I am to be the treasure of your future. Christ, I am. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we learn more and more, just like Moses over time, who you are. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me as one of the pastors for not prioritizing prayer in my private life and in my public ministry. And I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us as a church for prioritizing programs and doing things, which is good, and preaching over prayer. We know all those things are valuable to you, but teach us to be a church that would rather let things fall around us while we are on our knees, knowing that you are pleased when we come before you. Help us in our prayer life to experience your forgiveness and to be assured that it's not about a set of rules. You are not a, just a judge, but it's about our relationship with you. Comfort us, convict us during our times of prayer. Help us to pray and intercede for others. And in that way, Lord, make us more like the heart of Christ. I pray, Lord, that because of our, our church, that we would prioritize and love prayer, that you would just be honored with us. Father, we know, Lord, that we have a lot of resources in our prayer meeting. Will you, and with the 20-something people that are gathered, will you give us wisdom of how to use all of our resources in our buildings and how our staff should be deployed? Father, we come and surrender, and we thank you in advance for your forgiveness, and we ask, Lord, that you would be our focus, the center of our faith, and the prize of our future, your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.